Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. Archives. 
In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So Amen. So catch everybody up with what's been going on. <clears throat> so last weekend I was out of town at, a, at, a, at an apologetics conference. And for those of you who don't know what an apologetics conference is, it is a series of speakers who talk about issues that are closely related to understanding how the Bible is true and how to defend the Christian faith. And really quickly, what I wanted to say about that for True Life Fridays Radio is that I heard the most fantastic talk about the problem of evil and pain and, and realizing that in the context of all the things that we talk about in in and around this show, which is finally, I'm saying finally, we've had reputable teachers get up on a stage and finally make the statement that I have been running around in my head for the longest time, connecting, <clears throat> finally connecting all those things that skeptics of Christianity like to point to and say these are the things that we talk about when we talk about evil and suffering. We're talking about the Holocaust. We're talking about slavery. We're talking about um, all the other evil things that happen in the world, murder, mass murder, death, uh, oppression, and such. And looking at how those things are examples of evil in the world, and to which I say, yes, they are. They are examples of evil in the world. And thank you, Clay Jones, who was, was speaking uh, one week ago, Friday, who also included in among those things that we point to as evil in the world, the deaths of 55-plus million Americans murdered through abortion. And yes, for those of you who are listening to this today, the evil in this world includes the murder of 55-plus million unborn children in the United States alone today. And if we want to take this on a global scale, uh, I, I think the estimates are upwards of probably 700 million, somewhere between 700 million and a billion individuals that are lost have been lost through abortion uh, globally. But the curious thing that I find uh, in those skeptics of Christianity that would point to the problem of evil being a problem for believers, uh, and I'm thinking of last week again, of the guests we had on uh, for the debate on over over abortion is that he doesn't include abortion as one of those things that is evil that happens on the face of this earth. Ironically, ironically enough. Mm. And I want to know, and I want to explore that disconnect. We will do that on another show, but I just wanted to point that out. How ironic it is that skeptics want to point to the problem of evil as some kind of knockdown argument, and which is not, against the existence of God. But when you point out real evil, 
in addition to the kind they already accept, suddenly it's not evil. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really interesting. All right, Melissa, you are, uh, you've got this. So what do you have for us today? Um, well, um, I have, as you all know, we um, try to have a top story in the news and something that's circulating regarding um, the abortion debate and um, uh, ideas that we can bring you that are um, people are talking about and spreading. And so um, I ran across a um, article, and um, I think many of you may have read it, um, but it's by journalist uh, Amanda Marcotti. I think it's Marcotte. Um And in this um, article, she makes very uh, inflammatory statements, and it's dealing with the issue of abortion. Um, she is um, unashamedly a radical feminist. Um, she not only does not want children, she thinks that children are, in her words, time-sucking monsters. Um, in the article, she compares abortion to uh, removing a cavity. Um, and I'm going to just jump in and um, just read you some things that she did write um, and uh, and also some responses from Live Action and others and some thoughts that I had as well. And um, you guys feel free to jump in as well. But basically th- what this shows us is that, um, you know, while the pro-abortion demographic, they try to um, downplay abortion. And, you know, in, in times past, they've, uh, they've made the claim that abortion should be something that's rare and, and uh, safe, but, but not something that's, um, that's a, a regular occurrence. But what we see now is that they are pushing for abortion front and center. They're fanatics of, when it comes to abortion. They're obsessed with this issue of abortion. And it's as if it gives them some sort of um, power or worth um, to their their womanhood in in some sense. Um, but she said, um, this is, uh, and the article has a lot of profanity in it, so I obviously will not be sharing that part. Um, uh, but she she talks in the article about how, as pro-lifers, we are not being genuine about the abortion debate. Um, and she says that um, we pretend that we're inv- um, don't pretend that you're advancing the cause of free thought while doing so. Um, uh, she says that we're not arguing in good faith. Um, let me. I'm just going to jump down here. She basically says that. The issue is not about the humanity of, of the child, but the issue is about the bodily autonomy of the mother and about um, the mother's equal rights to not be forced into pregnancy and how uh, pregnancy obviously um, disproportionately affects uh, women because we're the ones who have to carry the child in that. Um, and, you know, she basically says that the whole when life begins debate is, is just totally irrelevant. And I think that that's something that we as pro-lifers need to pick up on, um, particularly because um, obviously we always need to go back to the humanity of the child. That's what that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for the children. Um, but these radical feminists, that is the least – that they don't even want to touch that topic at all. Um, they are uh, obsessed with their, the, you know, take your hands off my body um, type of – uh, rhetoric, and to them, abortion or pregnancy is is forced servitude. It's something that, again, um, men are not subjected to, so men have no say so, and it's pregnancy is seen as some sort of 
um, cruel and unusual punishment even. And so there, there, we have a lot of work to do in terms of dialoguing with them um, that, you know, in some instances um, it's dealing with, with women and our, our love for women and the beauty of pregnancy and these sort of things um, and not neglecting the humanity of the child in that process as well. Did you guys have any thoughts on that before I jump a little further into that? I, well, um, I, taking – go ahead, Thomas. You have something to say? Well, I do. I have two, I have two thoughts on that, and that, that's directed clearly at the fact that in the debate last week, Matt made the same arguments that this lady mm-hmm. was making, talking about it's her body and she doesn't. She has the right to not be subjected to a foreign object in her in her body. Well, mm-hmm. my my comment to this is is this: for those radical feminists who have that viewpoint, who end up pregnant, first of all, if you didn't want to end up pregnant. One, why did you not use protection? You're always talking about you're an advocate for um, birth control, but then when you get pregnant for not using said birth control, then you want to blame everybody else and, and the baby who was conceived out of your irresponsibility. So it's not the baby's fault that you was irresponsible in your act. Well, you're right about that, but the thing, is, the thing about birth control and using forms of contraception is that they have a failure rate. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what they want to do is even if you use uh, birth control 100% of the time with the consistency that the manufacturer of said birth control tells you to, even if you do everything right, that failure rate is still going to be there and women will end up pregnant Nonetheless, mm-hmm. and so they're they're trying to pr- want to have everything with zero consequences. So you right. use birth control anyway. I mean, how many people? I think I am pretty sure because I've met tons of people who said they were the product of failed birth control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you right. cannot get away from the fact that birth control is never going to be a hundred percent effective. Children will be conceived. And so they want abortion to be that backup plan in case, Mm -hmm. um, for in the event that birth control realizes that failure rate. And so those things, those kind of things have to be taken a little bit separately because they want abortion to be legal regardless if there's, if there's no birth control available at all. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So I'm not really... For them to say, let's use more birth control, let's use more contraceptive, use more pills, use more condoms, I don't know, you throw anything at it, really kind of at at the bottom of this conversation falls on deaf ears because that's not right. really what where their their emphasis are going to be anyway. Right. I mean, right. she she makes the claim, you know, she makes the 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 assertion here that, you know, if her birth control were to fail, um, she undoubtedly, mm-hmm. you know, undoubtedly will get an abortion. It's, it, it is already her backup plan. But it, it's like you said, Leticia, um, contraception does fail, and it fails a lot, actually, um, which is why we should look at sex as a more serious um, 
subject, you know, for men and women both, as opposed to abortion just being an easy way out. That would be the answer to me, <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, that we should um, be careful um, in that we should enjoy sex, but in the context of um, a loving relationship um, where there is a, a marriage commitment. And then, therefore, no one is bearing the burden alone um, when it comes to pregnancy and child rearing and these sort of things. Um mm-hmm. You know, and 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 the thing too is, if you do participate in the act of sex, there is even with birth control, there is that potential that a, a child is going to be developed through that. Um, and being the stronger um, um, uh, persons here in in the situation, we have an obligation to protect those who could be vulnerable due to our actions. So absolutely. there's there's um there's a sense of responsibility that they absolutely reject. When it comes to sex, I mean, it that's really what it boils down to, is sex without consequences. Right, right. I, I mean, I, we, I've had this conversation with, <clears throat> excuse me, my husband over the last argument that any pro-abortion supporter has, and that mm-hmm. is the violinist argument or the slash bodily rights argument that mm-hmm. uh, Matt had kind of, pinned his entire debate on, this side of his debate on, and whom we talked about previously uh, with the letter to Matt Walsh's blog, pinning, mm-hmm. you know, the final argument is about bodily rights. And also here this little, um, I don't know, this it's really kind of meaningless blog post by Amanda Marcotte, uh, saying things that have already been said before and have already been refuted before. Um, And then complaining that pro-life people have nothing new to say about (laughs) uh, being pro-life. Well, we have nothing new to say about being pro-life because all the pro-choice arguments have been exhausted. Exactly. Um, Because I think, hands down, uh, with the exception of politics, the argument for the pro-life position wins. Um, So, But let let me reiterate my, you know, just one aspect the one that I, I like to put out because it, it's not stated by anybody else, but uh, the issue, to the issue of answering the bodily rights argument, um, the unborn human being is a distinct person who originates in her mother's body. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, not as a result of any, mo- any of the mother's emotional state or plans for herself. Her body, the mother's body, is biologically nurturing that unborn child to maturity. Mm-hmm. A woman's reproductive system is designed to bring a baby into this world. So how can anyone assert that anything is out of order when a woman's body is functioning just as it is supposed to? Right. This right. is... What Amanda Marcotte has is a brain problem. And if she wants to say there is a problem with a woman's body not cooperating, not cooperating with her desires, well, she's welcome to say that. But, you know, I'm not going to say that. Because 98% of the time, nature is just doing what we set it up to do, wink, wink, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's almost this idea that um, the nurturing uh, relationship between a child and a mother is, if it's non-consensual in a sense, and that 
the mother rejects that, then therefore the child the, the child just deserves to die. Um, this idea that we are um, somehow alienated from the whole process of pregnancy, to me it's just it's bizarre. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I was looking at this quote by Frank Beckwith. Um, he said, um, the parents of the fetus are responsible for assisting it because they are in fact responsible for bringing into existence a being that is needy by nature and thus are responsible for its neediness. So, again, this trying to separate pregnancy from the dependency of the child is absolutely absurd because it is, um, it, it is our actions um, through the sexual process by which it, it brings a needy person to existence. And so that's, just, that's how it is. It's like you said, this is just how nature set it up to. And we have a duty um, to protect those who are vulnerable and who are dependent and who need help and assistance. And, again, this, we're not talking about a stranger on the side of the road who we don't know. <laughs> we're mm-hmm. talking about a human being who is literally developing inside of us and who is alive inside of us. So there is no no justification for um, cutting off that, that dependency and taking the child's life in this in these situations. Right, um, and, and I, furthermore, there, they have if a pro-abortion supporters have this cognitive dissonance between what their head wants and what their body is doing, then really it's not, and there's nothing wrong with what their body is doing. It's what's happening is natural, you know, Mm -hmm. conception of children, uh, pregnancy and birth is a natural part of human development and reproduction. So, I mean, nobody's going to say that's bad or wrong. It's not a disease. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. This is how the human species reproduces. This is how all animals pretty much right. reproduce. Uh, so right. if there's something wrong with that, it's not in the body. It's in your mind. And so mm-hmm. pro-abortion supporters, abortion supporters, I mean, like Amanda Marcotte, really they do have a head problem. It's mm-hmm. The problem is not down below your navel in your womb. The problem is in between your head, in between your ears, I mean. Right. Uh, So, uh, you know, and and the argument has failed nine ways to Sunday. It really has. Right. But it just shows. It's the last thing. Yeah, it's the last thing they have. I was going to say, it shows how feminism, not, not feminism in its original form, but this, Ultra um, liberal feminist movement, how it is just cancerous to your whole being and to your thinking. Even, I mean, you cannot think of anything but yourself, and you cannot. No other human beings matter. It is about you. You know, you, you know, you hate men, you hate babies, you hate you hate anything and anyone except yourself. And that's that just comes with the territory of this radical feminist movement. Um, and it's just it's really sad um, because it really has turned us from being you know these these nurturers in society, which is which is just how it is. It's again, it's like you said, it's just it's by nature women are nurturers. We are the bearers mm-hmm. of life. That is how we were created. Um, and so it turns us from these nurturers to just these you know egotistical, narcissistic, you know desensitized just monsters who you know who just hate children who hate defenseless defenseless ones and it's just really sad to see um 
it, it's almost like this need to oppress someone, this need to discard of someone, to discredit another um, race of people um, because um, our worth, we, because we feel bad about our own worth. And that's what I see when, right. I, when I read these sort of things. It's really scary, I think scary, you hit the actually. nail right on the head. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head severely. Um, I mean, we have not made any any way, you know, any shy, shied away at all from saying on this program that abortion is a form of slavery, just as much as the African slave trade was, mm-hmm. just as much as sex trafficking is. It is the use and abuse of someone else in order for personal gain. Mm-hmm. And in an abortion case, it is deciding whether somebody lives or dies based on how useful they are or wanted they are in this world. And who decides that? Somebody else. Right. Um, and for, I mean, this is really the end. If when, when people like Amanda Marcotte say that children are just, what is it, that they, they're life-sucking monsters, um, mm-hmm. I kind of like to think that she, was, she hasn't looked in the mirror when she's saying that. Because at mm-hmm. any some point in time, we're all dependent on somebody else for our life mm-hmm. and for mm-hmm. for for something. You know, mm-hmm. I feel sorry for her because if she lives to a ripe old age, um, the chances are she will again become terribly dependent on technology and the care of somebody else. And mm-hmm. you know, it might come back on her once if somebody with with the same half-hearted. Um, disregard for humanity that she has looks at her as a mm-hmm. life-sucking monster. I mean, I right. feel very sad for her, um, in, you know, knowing that that's kind of the fate for most of us. And I would right. think that at that point in her life, or any of us, that we would be able to rely on the goodwill and moral obligations that others have for us. And mm-hmm. to say that that's absent and... Functionally, we're life-sucking monsters is very, very sad. It is. It's what separates humanity from the animal world, you know, our compassion for our fellow human being, for those who are weak and who are defenseless. That is what... That's what makes us humans. Uh, I mean, not not solely what makes us human, but that's a part of being a human being. Is that that compassion, um, and not just a kind of this survival of the fittest type of mentality that animals live by, but um, the more uh, advanced, I say in square quote and uh, scare quotes, um, uh, the more advanced we become, uh, the the least um, humane we become. Unfortunately, we even have more laws protecting animals from mm-hmm. human abuse than we do mm-hmm. for the unborn, which we don't have any laws protecting the unborn from death. Uh, mm-hmm. Some states have been acting, and thank you, Mississippi, for enacting a 20-week pain-capable fetal protection act. Uh, but I put on this, and I used this as an object lesson for my daughter just today. And somebody had posted a picture and a story of a terribly abused dog. Somebody tried to light this dog on fire and burned the dog. The dog was severely burned, but is alive, was rescued, is undergoing treatment, and hopefully this dog will come back to full health. And everybody and everyone anywhere is going to say, that's terrible, how can any human being do that to a dog? <laughs> it's even illegal. And so the person who's responsible for this deserves to be dis- 
punished by the law, right? Right. So would it make sense would it make sense to say that we ought to legalize this just because people will keep doing this to dogs anyway? Would it make sense to legalize it because animals are considered property and so owners have the right to their to privacy and do with their own animal whatever they care to do? Would it make sense to say that since some owners are too poor to take care of their animals that it gives them the right to abuse them? Would it make sense to say that dogs aren't human or human persons or that they don't feel pain? Of course they do feel pain, but, you know, that's beside the point because some people say human beings don't feel pain in the womb, that it should be legal to abuse them. Would it finally make sense to legalize animal abuse if a dog were forced, taking their argument, forced, to live in your home and under your care unexpectedly for nine months. Should we then legalize animal abuse? Of course not. Right. So let me let me ask, if it doesn't make sense to legalize animal abuse under any of those circumstances, then why is it legal to do worse to an unborn human being under those same circumstances? Hmm. I don't think they have an answer to that. I, I don't either. I can't imagine what, what, what it would be. Hmm. It's just, just sobering when you think about it, huh? Well, I, I'm sure they're going to have some kind of snarky answer. <laughs> that, of, of that, right. I am fully assured, but will it be of substance? Is there a distinction between how we treat animals and how we treat human beings? Anybody's going to understand. Even Peter Singer gives a value to animals. He doesn't give mm-hmm. to the unborn. So, I mean, I think that's a huge inconsistency that we can use to argue against the abortion culture. Right. Because because you can't have it both ways. You can't have laws that exist on the books right now that say animal abuse is criminal and at the same time say that abortion of unborn human beings is not criminal. Right. Our law, and you know, as, as famous as he is and as infamous as he is, but he's right on the money here, Pastor Mark Driscoll, it says our laws, regarding abortion are absolutely schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. It's, it's two trains that are colliding, and somehow in our society's minds, we are allowing this collision to go on, and we're failing to recognize this. And I think mm-hmm. he's right on. He is. He absolutely is. I was. Um, I read this this quote from... Uh, well, Harry Blackman from Justice Harry Blackman, former J- Supreme Court Justice, um, in a case 20 years ago, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and he um, actually says abortion restrictions constrict women's bodies into the service of the state, forcing women to continue their pregnancies, suffer the pains of childbirth, and provide years of material care. So it's a, it's the same mentality that you're that you're speaking of. Again, with an animal, it's not even 
they don't even see it the same that taking care of an animal um, and not or not harming an animal is is not a state protected right. But yet, when it comes to children, it is absolutely a state supported right to end their lives because we don't want to continue to take care of them because we don't want to go through childbirth because we don't want to, you know, provide materially for the, for them. Um, so I, again, I don't see I don't see where the difference is and why there's why there is this gap. Right, right back after this break, um, we're going to start talking about uh, the documentary called Labeled, and hopefully we'll have our guest on by then. But uh, let's uh, let's take a real quick break. Phone lines are open. The number to call in is seven six zero five four two. Three nine zero seven, and you are listening to True Life Fridays Radio. Put your hands up, open wide. Put your hands up, side by side. Age don't matter, like race don't matter, like place don't matter, like what's inside. Let the kick drum kick one time.
And we are back with Pro, uh, True Life Fridays Radio. Let's see what happens when my mind wanders. True Life Fridays Radio. I'm back with my host, Melissa and Thomas. Hopefully you took care of that echo back there, hopefully. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I ran across um, this when I, I met our guest, our previous guest uh, that we've had on the show on a previous date, um, Cheryl Crozier. She had this fabulous story uh, about her her son who was born with trisomy 18. And through her, she told me about a documentary that was in the process of being produced at the time. And so I've been following kind of the production, waiting for the moment to be able to um, talk about the documentary on our program here. And it involves the stories of several families who have really, for lack of a better term, received extreme discrimination against them and against their children because their children were born with um, special needs or special conditions. Um, and let me play the trailer, trailer, and then we will talk to the producer, Rex Allison, who is our guest today, and so he can tell us a little bit more about that. And play. Thank you. The fact is the culture has moved to a point where children are considered a lifestyle accessory. And why have an imperfect accessory? He just took over and sent the conversation into how foolish like, I would be to want to have a C-section in the first place and put my life at risk. She stopped me and she said, no, I want to make this perfectly clear. I will never spend a health care dollar on your daughter. I feel like it's the last big discrimination we have in this country. He also tried to say that by bringing one of these children into my home would be, would be such a burden for my other children and this baby just wasn't worth that. We really learned that discrimination does happen and we felt discrimination towards our daughter. To think that they could take away food or water from him is just so far from the realm of possibility in our thinking. He fought and scratched tooth and nail for every breath that he took for 12 days, you know, in an establishment that wanted him dead. I remember things being said that were, were really mind-boggling. They treated him like, you know, he's this handicapped child that basically doesn't deserve to live. These children are not curses. They're blessings. All she needed was IV fluids and 60 cents worth of prednisone, something we could have gotten in any third world country, but we couldn't get it at that hospital because of her label. How can you, without consulting us, just make this decision to starve him. Okay, we are back with the producer of the documentary that was titled Labeled. And welcome to the program, Rex. 
Thank you. Um, I'm actually here with our director, who is my daughter, Hannah, and my wife, Dawn, as well. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us on Pro, on True Life Fridays Radio. Thank sure, you for having me. And don't mind me for confusing our, my own name still because I part, left part of my uh, part of my attention back about 1,500 miles across the great plains of the United States. <laughs> uh, it's not jet lag; it's car lag. <laughs> Oh, we've, we've traveled quite a bit making this film, so we certainly understand that. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for sharing um, this documentary. Now, I have not, I admittedly have not seen the whole thing, but I would really like to. But I want you to set this up for us and tell us about this documentary. So, and in all the details, because I think this is fascinating how. For me, I thought I would have thought that this happening here in America in this day and age would be something huge. It would hit the news. It would be all over, splashed all over um, news networks, Internet news websites, everywhere. Yet these stories or others like them, we really just don't hear about them. Well, you're right about that. that. I'd like to turn it over to Hannah to have her talk a little bit about that. Okay. April 1st, 2012, um, we started, actually we run a fiddle contest in Spokane, Washington, and I was feeding my sister Abigail, and Laura King noticed us from across the room, and the next day she introduced herself to my mom, and she told her about her son Isaac, who had been born with trisomy 18. On our way home that night, uh, we were driving back to Oregon, and my mom told me Isaac's story, and I was shocked. We'd had mm-hmm. our own disturbing encounters involving my sister Abigail, and actually several of her doctors had encouraged my mom to write a book about those experiences. But after we heard Isaac's story, we knew that we had to do something, and we had to do something now. Um, I had an interest in filmmaking, and at that moment it became clear to us that we needed to make a film about what was happening. So tell us what was your sister's, very briefly, and you can go into this a little bit more as you talk about the film, your your sister's um, story as well as Isaac's story and why you felt like, because you felt you knew about at least two stories, to seek out more and to make a film. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about Abigail. Um, when, when, oh, okay. Abigail when Abigail was born, Hannah was eight. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background uh, information on her. Abigail was born with a genetic uh, condition called Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome, and it is a um, where the, a piece of the fourth chromosome is missing. And okay. we got that diagnosis about six weeks before Abigail was born. She was very small during the pregnancy, and we came to the point where the doctor said, we either need to deliver her a month early because she's not growing, or we need to do an amniocentesis and find out why she's not growing. If there's a reason, then we'll understand. And so it was perfectly clear to us that an amniocentesis at that point in the pregnancy was the best thing we could do for our daughter to um, to know if she should be born or um, wait till she was term. So she was... Um, she was born term, 
after we got the diagnosis, um, the, we sat down with the neonatologist. There was one at our hospital and the uh, obstetrician, and we had a meeting with my husband and I and, and those two doctors, and the, the uh, neonatologist told us um, that Abigail was, you know, had this condition and she was going to have a very short life and she basically would be dead by two, that we needed to just go home and call hospice, that we need, that we, um, uh, if we, a child like this it would ruin our marriage, it would ruin the other siblings, and um, I couldn't be a doctor and have a child like this, and it was just going to be a very short life. And I was very wow. confused because I, being a doctor, the first thing that we did was go to the medical literature and say, okay, if our, we're going to have a child with Wolf-Hirshhorn syndrome, then let's see what is out there as far as in the medical um, literature. And so we'd read the papers that had been written on this, and nowhere did we see that information that mm-hmm. that's a hopeless diagnosis and that she would be dead by two. And so we, mm-hmm. we were... We were kind of puzzled that we were given that information. Um, so she was born, and, um, you know, we brought her home, and uh, after she was in the hospital for a short stay, and it, it was about when she was um, maybe about eight months old that uh, we had done some research and we were concerned that, that Abigail wasn't making uh, one of the hormones in her body that she needed um, to to, to make a long story short, I contacted a, a doctor at my medical school where I, I had gone to school, an endocrinologist, and he encouraged us to um, to get a pediatric endocrinologist involved to see if she made growth hormone. I'm going to let Rex take over here because he was the one that was calling these doctors. Um, okay. Really what happened is when we tried to get a, get our daughter tested to see if she had a deficiency in uh, human growth hormone, we, we had trouble even getting uh, some physicians to uh, run the test. Um, our, our own even doctor... after she was born? Yes. Yes, yes. this is after this she was after born. After she was born. After wow, born. okay. The neonatologist who um, uh, we had talked with who said she would have a, li- a short lifespan and said, you know, I, I don't think we should even run that test. Um, and it actually took us about six doctors to work with one just to, to, to get a test so that we could see that she was actually really deficient in human growth hormone. And, in fact, the, the, the night after the results were found out, um, the, endocrino- the pediatric endocrinologist uh, over, tried to overnight us some medicine because he said, I've never seen a child with, with this low of a, a result. Um, I, I'm, I'm really worried and really concerned, and I, I don't even want to let her go through the weekend in this condition. And, and she was eight months old at this time. So that's, that's right. where the battle really started is, is, um, is at that point. And, and in the midst of that, he was on his fourth doctor seeing, hey, can we just bring her over and get this test? And the, and the doctor said no. And I said, I don't understand. This, maybe they don't understand what you're asking for. And I called the doctor, and I said, look, we just need a blood test. And the doctor said to me, no. I won't spend healthcare daughter, dollars on your daughter, and I I kind of was like floored by that. And I said, I you know, I don't know what you're talking about. We just need a blood test. And she interrupted me and she said, 
No, I want to make this perfectly clear. I will never spend a health care dollar on your daughter. And were you ever given a, a reason for that other than just refusal? I mean, we can speculate all day long about what's probably motivating doctors to say things like that, uh, but what is, the, what is the driving motivation? Can we say that? I mean, can we even say that? Well, I, I think we can get to that in, in a minute as we talk a little bit more about the documentary, and I think Hannah will actually be able to answer that question really well. Let me give you two okay. quick, really two quick incidents that kind of set the stage. Um, later on, um, when her daughter was having a, a, her first seizure, which is something that's pretty easily treatable, um, again the same physician who helped uh, helped her through the the same neonatologist, not the same physician, uh, who helped her through the NICU and was serving as her pediatrician during the seizure um, had actually pulled me out outside of the room and said, you know, what would you like to do? Um, she was in bad shape and, and, and things weren't going well. And I said, I don't know, I'm not a doctor. And he said, well, you know, we don't have to do anything. We could just let her die. Um, mm. And this was the same person who said, your daughter's not going to have a very long life. So that was, that was one um, that, again, sets that stage. And, right. and the second is is about four years later where we were having a surgery that, um, again, we, it's not really important what it was, but she was having a surgery. There was a complication. She was to be transferred to a, a pediatric unit um, so that she could be helped with the complication. And that, that transfer was actually blocked um, at the hospital that we were in. And so the, the question was, well, why is it being blocked and who's blocking it? And at, at that point, um, Don got on the phone and said, you know, who was blocking this transfer? And I'll let her say it. Yeah, and, and so when they told me the name of the doctor that was telling us to go home that night instead of come to the, you know, the uh, medical unit, um, I looked mm -hmm. at Rex and I said, get the car, because it was the same physician who four years earlier had told me I will never spend a health care dollar on your child. All right. So we, wow. We had to check out of a hospital, drive across town to an emergency room in a different hospital to get our daughter treated. So that, that kind of sets the stage for, for how this started to come about. I think what's important to note, though, is that our, our daughter is 10 um, right now. Uh, she's 10 years old. Um, she's actually uh, walking in a walker, and she's doing um, quite well. So that the the idea of calling hospice or having a, a short life um, uh, certainly wasn't reality for us. And she certainly hasn't ruined our life. She right. hasn't ruined our children's life. She's actually, mm -hmm. you know, we she's been a blessing to our family. Mm-hmm. Here, and let me ask a really, really stupid question uh, in regards to the initial diagnosis where the doctor did say your life is going to be, you know, awful after this, your marriage is in trouble, your, your relationship with your children is going to be in trouble, the li their lives are going to be uh, negatively affected by the presence of your special needs child in your home. Uh, are those 
at all, any one of them, medical diagnoses? Yeah, I know it's a stupid no. question. <laughs> no, not at all. Then how is it that doctors who are supposed to be giving medical diagnosis are making a, a value judgment rather than a medical diagnosis? Yeah, I'm going to let Hannah speak to uh, some of the research we did. So in the process of making Great, this um, documentary, we poured through the medical research to see what has been, um, what kind of studies have been done, to see all these things that we were told we knew in our instance were totally false, and we wanted to see, what, you know, what, were, what are the excuses that, that doctors were giving for not treating children who have a genetic label. And we, we found five main excuses, the first being cost. They said the cost, you know, they cost too much. Well, as we learned from Dr. Wilfund, um, when you look at the total health care budget, the cost is really very small. It's really not a problem. The second okay. reason is that they're going to be suffering. And we found they don't suffer um, any more than any of the rest of us do. It's just that's not a problem either. The third okay. use that they make is that they're incompatible with life. Well, we've met people with my sister's diagnosis that are in their 30s, even one person in their 60s. We've met mm -hmm. several people, basically 13 and 18, that are 13, 14 years old. Clearly, they're not incompatible with life. The fourth reason is that they'll have a low quality of life. But that's not true either. My sister has a great quality of life. She's happy. She she loves us. We love her. She's All these kids have a great quality of life. And the fifth reason is that they will be a burden on the family and the siblings and the marriage. And, again, there's no research to back that up. And everyone we talk to, that didn't happen. They were blessed by their child. So mm -hmm. those those are some of the the main excuses that they use. And, and we did find uh, four research studies of trisomy conditions, and um, it was just so interesting to find out, um, you know, what the doctors would say on one hand, and then when they actually did the studies, what, what was it, Hannah? 100% of them smile. 95% laugh. Most play with toys, roll over. A lot of them walk with the help of a walker by age 10. Um, but, but, yet, but yet there are some doctors out there who continue to give misinformation to families. Right. Um, so, we're back, so we're back to the question, what is the motivation for misleading? Uh, I, I can't I don't know whether it's intentional or it's a matter of ignorance. Uh, but giving wrong information to families with children with these types of needs. Well, I'd like to go back a little ways if we could. Um, if we sure. looked at children with, which is something that that uh, is a condition that most of us are are fairly familiar with. Um, in the in the early days of Down syndrome, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, the life expectancy for a child with Down syndrome was about nine years. Um, it wasn't until 1983, uh, after some laws were enacted, uh, where 
children with Down syndrome were actually treated for conditions and were um, uh, given um, really enough medical opportunity to to, to live. Um, that you know, we know today children with Down syndrome have a life expectancy of 60. Um, some have lived to 70, and that's because we we didn't treat their conditions. And right, and even back in the 1980s, they only had a life expectancy of 25. So that really in, more than doubled in a short period right. of time when we started doing right. treating them like any other baby and taking care of simple surgical procedures and not denying them care because they had an intellectual disability. Right, right. We know today if you look at, at, at people who are touched by Down syndrome, um, they're, you know, they, they bless everybody. They, they simply bless everybody around them. Right. I, I've heard that many times. And so from know, parents. We hope, yeah, we hope it brings some awareness to what's going yeah. on because, um, you know, the first step in change is just awareness that there's even a problem going on. Um, and, frankly, as a physician, I wasn't aware of it myself until it happened to us. I go back, and I know this is I'm going to keep asking because I'm, I want to know, and, and Rex knows that this is kind of an inevitable uh, conclusion to why, why, why is this happening? Why are certain children with conditions that are obviously survivable and treatable being told that uh, their lives are really unsustainable and that people should just really give up on it. And I think um, this, what this really smacks of to me is kind of a remnant or a, or a some kind of extension of an age-old problem that we've had uh, that has seen human beings with, with certain conditions that, that are, un, I guess, undesirable, um, as needing to be excised from the larger human community as a form of eugenics, and is uh, this I, is this the case? I I think you're right, and I and I, I certainly think that there is something to that. I I think the bigger picture is, if you look at a biblical worldview versus a secular worldview, and if you start mm -hmm. to look at it from that perspective, then the issue of eugenics certainly comes into play. Um, one of the uh, I'm looking at one of the research papers right now. Yeah. I, I'm going back into uh, just with this. It, it might help clarify a little bit, but if we look back when we talked about that case that really changed the care for Down syndrome back in the 80s, it was called it was a, the Baby Doe case, and it was during the Ronald Reagan years. And what mm -hmm. Reagan wrote, the real issue is whether to affirm and protect the sanctity of all human life or to embrace a social ethic where some human lives are valued and others are not. As a nation, we must choose between the sanctity of life ethic and the quality of life ethic. Right. I think that's a very important, uh, I think that was a very important statement to make. It seems as if, and I certainly have been affected by this when my when my father was ill in the hospital, and uh, as as happens to lots of people who are older and hospitalized, that invariably the doctor comes to, or somebody <laughs> comes down the hall to talk with the relatives, and they start talking. 
talking about the quality of life and whether or not uh, to continue treating your loved one uh, in favor of of removing treatment such that that person will die in the name of the quality of life, saying if they keep living, their quality of life will be lower, so it would be much better if they just died. And I'm, you know, Barney, I'm trying to say this in a gentle, nice way, but I really don't think there is one. (laughs) I was just going to say there's really not a nice way to say it because when you enter into this quality of life, we understand that, that all of us are made in the image of God. And when we start to devalue, devalue the lives of, of anybody, uh, what we've set up is this secular worldview where we're trying to determine whose quality is, who is a burden, who decides mm-hmm. whose quality is, is good, bad, or indifferent. Um, if we look at, at, at this situation, the documentary certainly examines some of these issues. If we look at all people as a blessing, if we look at these children as a blessing, as opposed to a burden, um, a lot of these questions simply start to go away, because if we're seeing these children as a child of God, in the same way that Jesus called the children, he didn't call just the perfect children, he called all the children. And so if we see these children as a blessing, that quality of life issue just starts to, it starts to melt in terms of the worldview that it's being framed upon, if that makes sense. Oh, that well, to me, that makes perfect sense. How is it that our medical community that is designed to help and heal have become this way where it's now a matter of cost and those five features that your daughter, that Hannah, has, has kind of illustrated for us? How did it become about those five factors instead of health and healing? Well, there are a couple of things. One of, the, one of the things that we uncovered in the film is that there is only one state in the country, Michigan, that actually has something called a futility policy. And Actually, that addresses futility it, That policy. addresses, yes. Yeah, it's, called the, uh, it's called the Medical Good Faith Provisions Act, and it's, it's a law that requires a hospital to provide a written copy of their futility policy to anyone who requests it. And, and the reason that that's important is what a futility policy is, is some hospitals have them and some don't. But if a, if a hospital has a futility policy, then um, it, it, it allows the doctors to withhold or withdraw treatment from a patient without the patient or, in this case, the parent's knowledge if mm-hmm. they deem the diagnosis futile. And what futile means is that... Tr- Treating the condition will not um, cure. cure the underlying problem. And so an example might be um, if our daughter, Abigail, had pneumonia and somebody wanted to use a futility policy, they could say, we're not going to give her antibiotics because that won't cure her underlying condition, which is Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome. Hmm. And we've, we actually how, okay. Uh, so go ahead and so we we didn't. That's something that we didn't know anything about, and so we actually learned a lot about futility policies in making this documentary. Wow. How about how many hospitals do you think have a futility policy? I have no idea, and the only state that they're required 
to provide that information upon request is Michigan. And that just uh, was enacted, it actually went into law in the fall of 2013. Wow. So the Michigan is the first state to recognize that this is an issue. And, you know, one thing that we'd like to see happen is all 50 states adopt a policy in which there's transparency in these policies. Right. Right. So at any given time, if, uh, if I were to fall ill and I needed to go to the hospital, I have no idea whether or not the hospital I go, uh, that I am going to has a futility policy. Even if I, even if I do ask, they they're not obligated to tell me because I don't live in Michigan. <laughs> They are obligated in Michigan that they do have to wow. provide it in writing, but, but, you know, I don't know of any other state that has that requirement at this point. Quickly, wow. if you could. Um, yeah, go ahead. Part, part of where this is coming from, and, and again, the film addresses this, is, is looking at the history of eugenics and the history of how um, children with special needs have been treated um, over the course of the years. And, and even in America, and we, we look at some of the history, uh, going back to the, uh, actually going back to, to Darwin and Galton, but in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, the eugenics movement was, was alive and well uh, in California and, and in America. Um, and, and we've traced the history of that through World War II. Um, we address a little bit about Hitler and um, where the eugenics movement has gone from to where it is today, and and I think that that really helps uh, helps folks put this into a a frame of understanding that this is not something new. This didn't just happen uh, five years ago or ten years ago. This has been going on for well over a hundred years. And some of the people that we we talk about uh, or bring up in the film uh, are people that that many of us would know and, and would not even uh, understand that they were. Uh, involved in eugenics, um, or at least um, at least uh, believe that eugenics was the right thing to do. People like uh, Theodore Roosevelt or Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who was right. a president. Helen Keller, who many of us would would think would be on the opposite end of uh, eugenics for somebody with special needs. There are a number mm -hmm. of, of historical figures who we we bring up and talk about in the film. Um, that really puts us in the frame of a secular versus a biblical worldview, and it's and it's pretty, it's, it's uh, yeah. you know, there's a pretty big dichotomy yeah. there. And it, it 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 was, if you go back into like the the teens and the twenties, it was mainstream medicine at that time. And actually, Hollywood made movies about it. And you know, one of the movies was called The Black Stork, and that played from 1917 to perhaps as late as 1942, and it was you know about a a mother to have her defective, they called it, um, child mm -hmm. die. And so it was mainstream. And so we have seen a kind of return to that. Uh, and it still un seem seems like it's under the table, but slowly, silently, under, you know, uh, behind closed doors, this is being pushed. And to what end? You know, are we going to see this more prevalent in the medical community going forward from here? Well, uh, again, our our hope is to bring awareness to this issue and that we can, right. you know, go the, the other direction um, because it's not okay. 
it's not okay. And I think Hannah has some kind of some some things that she'd like to just say. These are hopefully the things that we would like to try to to see happen um, with the film. Uh, Baby Doe, the Baby Doe case was highlighted in a documentary in 1983, and that became uh, kind of a call to action for children with Down syndrome. And we've seen what that's done. So we have kind of our own call to action um, in terms of what we would like to see uh, happen as well. Like we right. said earlier, sure. like we said earlier, the first step of change is being aware of the problem, and we would like to see many people start to become aware of what is happening. Another thing is on our website we have a resources page, and on there we list several um, support groups and websites that are maybe going to help you, like-minded people, get connected. Um, so go to our website, you know, if you have a child, and try to find a group. And if you don't find your diagnosis listed, um, email us, and we'll try to help you get connected with the group or a person who's gone through this that maybe is like-minded. Um, ultimately, what we would like to see happen is this culture change. Um, just as the early Christians changed the culture, um, and a documentary changed the standard of care for people with Down syndrome, we would like to see this culture change back to one that values every life. And, and we have and some ways that you can help us do that um, and that your listeners can help us do that. Like we said, one of them is to go to the website and to help find information. A second is to, to come alongside um, families who have children with special needs and um, understand that, that they're being pressured. Um, we, we just talked, spoke with a, a person um, in a different part of the country whose doctor, she's 16 weeks pregnant, and her doctor was pressuring her to say, oh, this child is not going to be compatible with life. You should just abort this child. Uh, you know, she watched the documentary. She contacted us. We got her in touch with a Christian doctor uh, in her area for her, uh, during the pregnancy. Um, the third thing is to, to get the film labeled and give it to your, your, your pastor who visits hospitals. Uh, give it to your health ministries at your churches. Um, give it to Christian doctors that you know, um, help any doc, or any doctor for that standpoint. Help us spread the word that these conditions are not futile. They're not, they're not uh, lethal. Um, necessarily, they're, they're, um, these children deserve to be, or these parents like be, deserve to be treated like anybody else, and that if, if, if physicians and hospitals are doing their jobs, um, these children will, will be uh, given a chance at life that the way that all of us deserve to be given a chance at life. Right, and I'm, I'm looking at the website now, and it's labeledthemovie.com. Correct? Yes. And we encourage anybody, if they cannot find help in their area, or if they cannot find the diagnosis they're looking for, email us, and we will, we will try to help that person find some folks that they can connect with who will come alongside them and support them through, this, uh, through their pregnancy and, and through whatever situation they're facing. Okay, and tell us a little bit more about the website. Where can people find the website and how to contact you? The website can you hear me? Um, is, oh. The website is labelthemovie.com. Um, 
we're also on Facebook under Labeled Documentary. Um, as far as contacting us, we have a contact form on the website. Also, you can send us a message on Facebook or post to the page, and we'll get back to you as soon as you know we possible. get the message. Yep, we get it. Um, okay. You can see the trailer to the film. Um, you, you played it, um, mm -hmm. and we're happy to. Um, there, there's a way to order the film through the website as well. Wonderful. And you, this film had won an award for. Um, tell us a little bit about the the having. Did it win an award? I am so sorry if I've got that wrong. <laughs> um, Label premiered just about three weeks ago at the Christian Worldview Film Festival in San Antonio, Texas, where it received the best Sanctity of Life Film Runner-Up Award. Great. Yes, that's what I, I referred to, and you find that information on the website uh, labeledthemovie.com. And I am so glad that you had made this film. How many families totally total did you interview for the content for the for for the documentary? Well, we interviewed over 50 people, and uh, we talked to people in over 25 different states. We drove over 12,000 miles, and we flew about 12,000 miles. Um, wow. As well, we, we did interview uh, physicians from six major medical centers um, who help provide uh, background and information as well as uh, on-camera interviews for the film. And, and we interviewed a historian um, out in Connecticut to get, the, to, go, to get that history of eugenics. That's right. We really wanted to cover all the aspects, the family stories and and uh, what was happening to them. We also, on the, on the stories that we told, the details of the medical, we also got the medical records. And I reviewed the records so that we could be certain as to what had happened um, from what mm -hmm. they were telling us and, and put the whole story together. So we reviewed the records. We talked to expert physicians. We talked to a historian. And we talked to theologians. What do you see, um, what, what, what would you like to see happen with this film? How would you like to see the medical community change, people's attitudes to change? What would you like happen with this film? Well, like we said, ultimately, ultimately we'd love to see the culture change. We know mm -hmm. that change is difficult, but just helping to bring awareness first and foremost, even to, to people who this condition may not touch at all, um, having them uh, at least aware of, of how to find help for somebody. Interestingly enough, during the making of the film, our narrator uh, was a pastor, and we, we chose him to narrate the history. He didn't really, uh, he wasn't involved in the film, but just shortly after um, his part was finished, he had a he he had reviewed the film for us and and uh, was uh, helping us with that process. A family member of his contacted him. I believe it was a cousin and said, I'm having a, a, a child with trisomy, um, trisomy, 13. trisomy 13. And he, mm -hmm. he acted us and said, you know, how do I, how do I get this how person help? help? How do I get them help? And so we have connections through the, the, um, with families mm -hmm. that supporting uh, trisomy, and um, we were able to get them in contact with somebody in their state. So even if somebody doesn't have an interest or, or a family member or know of anybody at this point, this is a, a common enough situation, 
And it, we know that it touches at least 2,000 families a year just with the trisomies. Just with trisomy 13 with, and with 18. With trisomy 13 and 18. That, that people will come in contact with this. And being, being aware of what to do, how to help some of these families, that's really what we're trying to do the most. We're, we're trying to get the word out so that these families do not have to be in this sheltered, cloistered um, area where they don't have anybody who's giving them the other okay. side of the story yeah. or accurate right. information. Because you really feel alone, uh, you know, when, when the doctors around you seem to be pulling their support. Um, I, I really can, I have a, just a strong feeling that these families that you've interviewed, they all went through that where they felt like nobody else was going to help them. They were all telling them that the best thing for their child was to let them die. Yes, you're exactly right. And, wow. and it still happens. Uh, in fact, one of, one of the people that stories in, in labeled, uh, the doctors actually said any good parent would take their child home to die. And, wow. and ironically, one of the one of the families in the in the uh, film uh, was investigated by Child Protective Services because they wouldn't they would not take their child home to die. Um, so. That, that's what we're trying to do is help people become aware of this because it's, 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 it, it's just not right. And without having people, everybody be aware of the problem and shining the light on it, it, it won't change. In a lot wow. Of, I, well, I, oh, go ahead. The treatment we're talking about, like we said earlier, we used to t- treat children with Down syndrome this way, and we don't any longer. We just need to um, take all the other kids with these genetic conditions and treat them the same. Mm, that's right. Is, is there, I mean, I, let me ask, you know, it seems like for me a one stupid question after another. Is, is there, I'm pretty sure that a lot of these parents have had the pressure to abort their children before they were born. Does the, does, it seems like now that their children are out in the world, the discrimination doesn't stop. And, where I mean, I'm trying. I'm struggling to find the right words to say how can we possibly look at that type of uh, you know treatment as medical. Well, one of the comments that that comes up in the film is um, it's a vicious circle, and mm. what I mean by that is these children are labeled as being incompatible with life or having a futile or lethal condition. And one of the, the parents um, asked the question of, a, of, a, uh, of their medical staff, well, you know, do you treat the condition? Do you, do you treat what's wrong with them? You know, or why do they die? And they said, well, you know, they have heart problems. And he said, well, do you treat the heart problems? And they said, no. And he said, well, why don't you treat them? And he said, well, because they have trisomy, they're going to die. And so what <laughs> happens is somebody is carrying a child with trisomy, that's been identified through an amniocentesis, um, the pressure is put on upon them to abort the child. Now, we, we, uh, we've tried not to be in that, in that realm because we're talking about children who've already been, uh, who have been born, and that's, that's the focus of our film. Um, however, it is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the same sense of what you're asking that 
parents are, are being led to believe that these children cannot have a, 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 a cannot live very long, and therefore, um, when medicines are withdrawn or surgery, life-saving surgeries or medical treatments are not offered, they it's kind of becoming the self-fulfilling prophecy because the child ends up not being able to live because they're not treated. So it becomes this vicious circle right. over, over and over again. Right. Well, I thank you for making this film uh, because I think this is a subject I, that crosses more than crosses more lines in the medical world than just children with special needs. I think whenever a person becomes uh, no longer seen as valuable or worth treating in by a doctor, and it just takes one, I guess then it begins the cycle of this battle, it seems, between the living and uh, the living family members and the medical side to what to do with your patient, to, to, to whether or not they're worth keeping around. Um, so I think a lot of people really need to explore these stories of these families and these couples and the lives of the children that you feature in this film and take a really hard look at where medical ethics is going and how far it has fallen from the purpose of medicine at all. I mean, that's how I feel about that. Um, so tell us one more time how uh, they can obtain a copy of the film Labeled is available through our website, www.labelthemovie.com. Um, there's a link on there that says DVD, and you follow that, and it, it's available through there. Great. Um, any last words you want to say about either the issues that are raised by Labeled or the movie itself? Just that... We, we're happy to try and promote awareness among your listeners, and we hope that um, they will help carry this message as well. Absolutely. Thank you for being a guest on True Life Fridays Radio. For your entire family, thank you to Rex and to Don and to Hannah for spending uh, your, your uh, afternoon with us. And also, I know we didn't hear from Abigail, but I'm thankful that she is a part of your family and she serves as a great example of the the hope and the life that exists, you know, in spite of the, the misguidance of a lot of doctors that, you know, for whatever motivation decide not to want to treat children with her condition. Thank you. Thank yes, you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're wel we'll welcome you back on the show anytime you have anything to add. Hey, thank you. Appreciate that. Great. Thank you very much. And so I think, wow, um, I, I, it's, there's nothing more heartbreaking. And for me as a, as a pro-life, solid, consistent pro-life person who takes the pro-life view not only from inside the womb but through birth, natural death, can, trying to apply consistently the value of life, I cannot find a good reason, good enough reason, there's lots of reasons, a good enough reason to say that someone isn't worth the time and the energy of medical care because you know what? That is the definition of medical 
care. Right now we are waging a huge political battle over whether or not uh, insurance policies can or cannot cover certain services. We're having this huge debate over the structure of how to pay for medical care. And you know what? Inside that debate is something that has been maligned and say it, said that it wasn't true, but it is in the, the, the nitty-gritty in black and white, that there will be a group of persons appointed by our officials to make decisions of life and death over certain individuals in our country. And I am afraid to show, to share with our audience and, and the world the, the striking fact of the matter being that in, in the future, the first persons to be sacrificed on the altar of cost containment, on the altar of feudal care, and on the altar of eugenics is going to be our children with genetic conditions, with special needs, conditions that are, have no, you know, they're not, it's through no fault of their own or their parents or anything else, just life. That's how life is. And refuse to allow these children to have a life on earth because of money and because of eugenic ideals. It's happened before. Let's not be naive about this at all. It happened less than a century ago, half a world away. And we fought a war with those people that thought such kind of care, if you want to call it care, such kind of eugenics was an acceptable way for the medical community to behave. And we are returning uh, in this country from a philosophy that turned away from it for our time because actual ethics prevailed over unethics and we're returning back to the philosophy that's underpinning the ideas of eugenics, population control, and uh, somehow this striving for a perfect or a better human evolution through killing those that we deem unfit or useless eaters. It's sad to say, and it's a sad commentary, that there are these forces at work in our medical community trying to turn the clock backwards. That's right, backwards. You want to know why I call leftist progressives actually regressives. It's for that very reason. Not only do they want to regress us as a society backwards in the way we view human life, in the way we view human relationships and civil behavior and societal norms, they want to regress us medically as well. There is no treatment for, there is no, there's no reason to innovate treatments for people if we're just going to kill them, there's no reason to do research and development and to make actual progress 
and make efficient medical decisions uh, for the good of others. If those others are going to die, we're going to allow them to die, we're going to kill them, we're going to not treat them at all. There is no real progress anywhere if we simply say that those that need it the most are not going to receive anything at all. Where is the progress in that? And so I just want to encourage people to look at, at the situation that we have in medical ethics. And we, we have pounded this gavel before on this program, and I will again, because as, as often as this is happening in our hospitals, in doctors' offices, and the 50-plus so families that were uh, individuals and families combined that were interviewed to make labeled the film, there are plenty more that are experiencing the same thing, who feel alone, who are, who are told that their loved one is not worth the time or the effort or the money to treat very simply, that medical advancement has gone so far to be able to treat them, but they're not going to get it through the prejudice and discrimination and some philosophical ideal of eugenics that some arrogant little doctor who thinks he or she is making the world, uh, the human race, a better human race by not treating certain people. It's opposite day. Permanent opposite day, like I said, with most regressive ideas. And Melissa, I know you're still hanging in there. I want to see what you have to say about that. Oh yes, I'm definitely hanging in, and that was a great, very enlightening interview. Um, yes, everything um, that was said was um, just very. Like I said, it, I learned a lot, and sadly, um, it's it's as we as we feared. You know, the things that. Are going on um, in the name of medicine and in the name of um, uh, look uh, healthcare um, is really scary. Um, is like you said, value judgments are being made when they're unwarranted on the quality of someone's life or the worth of someone's life, and um, this is exactly why um, healthcare should not be the business of the government and why they should stay out of it and. Um, sadly, I think that we will see more and more stories like this, but we can bring awareness. And I think um, through the film and through the, the awesome work that that, that um, they're they're doing, um, more families can come together and support each other who are in these situations and stand up to um, to the system and um, to these uh, these ruling authorities on these matters. But um, it's just very very sad times that we're living in, unfortunately. Yeah, um, you know, what's flabbergasting to me is that I have thought, I mean, in my naive self, I've, I've been very naive over the years, and this is probably one of those things that I have come to grips, I've had to, because it's right here right in our faces, had to come to grips mm-hmm. with is I used to think that eugenics and population control were things that we read about and not mm-hmm. something that we have to deal with as a present-day issue. And when I think about eugenics and I think about population control, I, honestly what happens in my mind is I think of black and white pictures of people that lived in 1920s and 19, you know, the turn of the century, 1910, 1920, 1930s, um, right. preceding World War II. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think about people that are dead 
that used to think this way, that used to kind of push this philosophy that we can make the human race and human species better if all the sick people would just die and not, you know, not perpetuate their genes or, and then, you know, refuse to treat them. And if we didn't even have them around, we would all live better lives. I used to right. think or that, that people didn't for, think like that anymore. Or that it's better for them to not live, that <laughs> that they are better right. dead than alive. Oh, yeah. That's, that's really yeah. scary. Hmm. Um, oh, and, yeah. and, and so I... I still have a difficult time with this, thinking that there are doctors today who have the exact same mentality. I used, to, you know, this should have been in the history books as something people used to think, and it's very hard. I, you know, I don't know why it's very hard, but it, as cynical as I am, it's still very hard for me to come to grips with this being a present-day issue. Like I'm, I'm like really. Really, you think that children that are completely treatable should not be mm-hmm. allowed to live. We should not spend our, our resources that we have. We have it. It's here. We shouldn't right. spend our resources on caring for these children because you have some ideal that, it should, it's, it, that, that people like that shouldn't, exist. I mean, it's just, it's cold-hearted. I'm trying to look at it from um, the, probably their point of view saying that, well, you know, society would be better off, people, families, uh, relationships would be better off without the stress of having to care for a special needs child. Um, and then we could use our resources and energy for something else. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what that something else necessarily would be but i thought medicine yeah i thought medicine was existed Mm -hmm. to help and heal people and now we have a complete reversal Mm -hmm. of that that idea right rationing (laughs) um as if people aren't aren't worthy to be um cared for and to be um you know, healed and to be comforted in their pain. Um, you know, just let them die like um, uh, was said earlier was the the responses that some people got, you know, just let them die. And, um, yeah, it's just mind-boggling to me. It's really, it, it just, it's so antithet- um, an- antithetic to the Hippocratic Oath to, to save life and to preserve life and to, to protect life. It's just not what we're seeing anymore. Right. Well, I'm going to go take a break real quick, and we are going to come back with our stupidest thing ever uh, and uh, just commentary on some other things. To wrap up the show, we will be right back. Taking your calls. In the light, I wanna shine like the sun in the heavens. Oh, 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 o
you are listening to Pro-Life Fridays Radio, now become True Life Fridays Radio. Our phone lines are open. The number to call in is 760-542-3907. We would love to hear from you if you have something you have a question for our host today um, on anything that you've heard about, talked about on the program. And uh, we want to end up with a couple of things and also our stupidest thing ever of the day. And it's doozy. Uh, let's talk about uh, something that I wanted to, I, I, the, that I think is really important that we bring out um, in, light of, in light of this heavy subject matter. And that's the incompatibility I see with this idea. Uh, I just thought of this, so by the way, I, thought, I just thought of this. We're trying to help children who are born with, with conditions that are being, you know, they're being told by medical experts and doctors that they're not going to be treated. I want to know where's the social justice in that. Because we hear a lot in politics and on the news, and for every advocacy group and activist group out there that exists, for every plant, piece of paper, and and sexuality that exists, that there is some kind of social justice that needs to be uh, maintained or enacted on their behalf. So where, I want to know, where is the social justice when it comes to Innocent, needy, helpless, medically uh, medically needy children who are born into this world, who have the life that, that you and I would just simply ha- say is the base of all our rights. And where is the social justice um, after the way they've been treated? I think that's a fair question, don't you? Either of you? What do you have for us? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, what do you have for us? Oh, I just Ooh, asked me. the question. Yeah, I just asked okay. the question. Since we have social justice ideas about all kinds of things out there, I said from plants to sexuality to you name it. Why don't we why don't we have the concept of social justice on children who have been whose families have been told and mistreated by the medical community? I mean, if surely surely if any group on earth deserved a little more compassion and recognition and they are owed something by the larger human community, it would be these children. I agree. I mean, if we're going to be all leftist liberals and progressive regressives about this, surely we ought to be giving these children their social justice. Ah, but I feel like it's the same question when we talk about um, the problem of evil. Also, of evil happening in this world, but when we talk about 55 plus million children that are being murdered in the womb since Roe v. Wade in this country alone, suddenly that's not evil. Right. So there's, so there's that. Right. 
Yeah, it. There's just um, kind of a. Those who are the neediest and the weakest among us again are seen as. It's like we talked about earlier with the uh, article with uh, uh, Amanda Marcotte. Um, those they're seen as, um, as as Tom sucking monsters. You know, they are seen as those who are because they're dependent by nature, um, because they need more, and they're worth less. And so that's kind of the philosophy that has invaded the culture, unfortunately. Right. Okay. Well, I, you know, I could beat on that all day long, and I, I'm pretty sure that uh, everybody would get me really tired of me pointing out the inconsistencies of the regressive left with in terms of how they treat people they favor versus uh, people they're, uh, they'd rather discard. Uh, but we have plenty of shows to do that on, and uh, we welcome you back to listen to me rant about that another day. Uh, the stupidest thing ever that I could dig up today is really, really, um, is going to be golden. And for those of you who don't know what the stupidest thing ever is, it is our weekly segment where we pull off the internet something that encompasses something about human behavior, uh, human uh, occurrence, or something that happens. It doesn't have to be necessarily pro-life related, but it is something that happens that I call the stupidest thing ever. And I have to make a note that we're not necessarily calling people, individuals, stupid. I have to make that note. I mean, I, I guess we have to... We have to make sure people don't misunderstand that. <laughs> uh, we have to make sure if you understand that it is most likely the situation. I will tell you if it's about a person who I think is stupid, but uh, the situation that the story raises is the stupidest thing ever. And for this week, I want to say I found another reason, another reason why I don't like Macy's department store. If you haven't heard... Uh, a 21-year-old, what's her name? A 21-year-old Army Specialist Kayla Reyes, who recently returned from her tour of duty in Afghanistan. So she's a soldier that actually went to Afghanistan, served for a year there, was in the Army for four years, served her country, came back home, applied for a job at Macy's department store to sell clothing, housewares, maybe shoes, I don't know. She applied for a job. And when she told her interviewer that she had just returned from her tour of duty, suddenly she says the interview was not about her ability to do a job, but it was all about her deployment overseas. And in the end, she, the interviewer told this, excuse me, this veteran, this young veteran, Kayla Rays, told Ms. Rays that she did not want to hire her, <clears throat> excuse me, because she was afraid that her service to our country would cause her to react negatively. I'm saying this as nicely as I can, by the way. Uh, cause her to not treat customers properly. Hmm. Uh, um, 
I have a longer clip, but let me just summarize that she went on, on uh, my friend Dana Lash's radio program earlier this week and gave her an interview and said she, that, the, that the interviewer said she was concerned about Ray, Ms. Ray's ability to handle customers if those customers got up in her face. I think that's, what, I think that's a quote from Ms. Ray's quoting the interviewer. And so here's the clip of part of the part of her interview with Dana Lash, and this is what she was saying about about the interview. Um, what about that would have in any way made it to where you could not sell a, a, a sweater set to someone, or or ring somebody out, or manage salespeople, anything like that? Especially because I told her, I told her, I was like, you know, I work, I work directly with people in Afghanistan. That was my, like, my, I'm a trust driver. That's the main thing that I did. She was like, yeah, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't seem right. I was just like, honestly, I, I was getting mad, but I know how to keep my composure, even though she doesn't think I know how to, because she obviously thinks she knows me. But I was really quiet and just smiling. I was just like, okay. At first. At first, I honestly, like, it didn't really hit me hard. Like, I came out of the interview, and I called my best friend. I was like, hey, you know, this happened. And she was like, oh, you know, she's like, that's wrong. And then I posted about it on Instagram. And then I posted a picture first, and then I made that picture that everyone's seen, the ones you see where it has the writing on the left-hand side and my picture on the right-hand side. Mm -hmm. I made that, and I put it on my Instagram, and I just shared it on my Facebook thinking, I really want to know if it was discrimination. I wanted to know if I was making a big deal out of it or if it really was discrimination. And that thing went viral. It is still going viral. Like that picture is everywhere. Yeah. The response from Macy's, they released uh, some sort of non-statement. They write, employing veterans is a priority at Macy's. We've proudly hired thousands, blah, blah, blah. Our commitment is strong, blah, blah, blah. It sounds like, um, uh, uh, that, I don't know, it just sounds like a Ben Stiller movie line. And have they, have they apologized for her behavior towards you at all? I mean, what, are you, I mean, no. what would you like to see happen yeah. out of this? I mean, obviously an apology. They need to apologize. Yeah, that's what everybody wants, an apology. That's like, that's like what everybody tweets or writes about, just to issue out an apology. But instead, they issue out that statement saying they offered me a job two weeks. But they didn't say they offered it two weeks after everything went viral. And then I actually commented on there, and I actually said um, that I had declined the job offer. I really did. Why, why would I want to work there? Why? Why, indeed? I wouldn't. I mean, if I were... Um, person returning from from Afghanistan and I just wanted a job at Macy's to to sell clothing and uh, and let me tell you uh, if the interviewer was worried about what would happen if a customer got up in her face as she had said um, would she keep her composure? You mean like she kept her composure when a jerkaholic retail interviewer got up in her face about her deployment? Uh, I think that irony speaks for itself. And there is no greater disrespect, I think, that anybody can show our men and women who have served this country than to say that the problem is that they serve this country. <laughs> I, just, I really, I, do I have to tolerate that? Do any of us have to really tolerate that? Uh, so I I really think that is today's this week's I mean this week's stupidest thing ever that this um, I well okay I'll go out now and say it the interviewer is <laughs> the stupidest thing ever because I would never even if I didn't agree 
with the idea of military service. If I didn't agree with the war that our military servicemen are engaged in, I would never want to treat an individual with such disrespect, even if I didn't like what they did. So, you know, that's that's me as the stupidest thing ever. Uh, so, uh, any last words from you two before we sign off from the uh, for the end of the show? Well, great show as usual. That was pretty stupid on behalf of the universe, and my phone sucks. But other than that, great show. I I know you've had yeah. phone troubles, and maybe we can make that uh, make your phone next week's stupidest thing ever. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, I'll have a new phone next week. We'll see. So, All right. All right, now to our listening audience, please join us on Facebook at True Life Fridays Radio. Uh, that is capital T, capital R, capital U, dash Life Fridays Radio, True Life Fridays Radio. We are also on Twitter uh, at, at TLF Radio. I want to share with you that we have, come visit our website at truelifefridaysradio.com, and you must spell it. T-R-U, LifeFridaysRadio.com. If you misspell it, you may still find us. I hope you do. And feel free to send us email, send us uh, feedback from our program, and we hope to see you back here in our chat room and on live on the radio right here next week on True Life Fridays Radio. Have a good night. God bless, everyone. God bless. Hear that you're calling me to be the heart.